This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, there are wolves in the woods, what folklore can teach us about storytelling. And this week, we want to extend a very warm welcome to Lorraine Wilson, who has graciously returned to our show after about a year, I think it is. <laughs> so, hello, Lorraine. Hi, and thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to have you back. We, I'm still reeling from the last episode that you came on to, so I'm really looking forward <laughs> to this one. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, now previously uh lorraine came and spoke to us about this is our undoing um and this week she is going to be talking a little bit about her newest book which has just come out the way the light bends so um before we kind of get into that uh there is another reason actually lorraine that um <laughs> We've asked you here today. Oh dear. Now, um, we had some comments on Twitter from the last episode that you were on. We had some people who really, really enjoyed it. In particular, we had one person, uh, Taylor, who commented asking um, whether you'd had any other near-death experiences. And you, you tantalizingly hinted <laughs> towards some other wild stories and then left it at that. And frankly, um, I want to know what happened because last time you just kind of blew our heads off a tiny bit. So before we really get into the crux of the of the episode, uh, tell us a little bit more about how you've almost died. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Um, okay, so this is, this is, my memory is a sieve and this also sounds quite bad, but I can't remember which of the ways I've nearly died I told you about in my last episode. So was it the plague or the spider? Yes. It was the plague. Okay. It was the plague, plague spider, and, the and spider. almost eaten by wolves. Oh, and almost eaten by wolves. Okay, so we've covered the wolves. That's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, there are... <sighs> There are a few sort of things like trucks going off cliffs when you know with the um, when you're in the back, you know, open the open bed trucks and you're in the back and it sort of the gears all go and it it slides backwards off a cliff. And um, the casual way in which you say this is like, oh, I suppose this just a, I mean, like that's not doesn't really count. No, it counts. What? <laughs> That was that was exciting. There's a, yeah, sort of. I mean, I guess we covered animals nearly killing me last time, so we could do mechanical. So mechanical. I was. We also had. We're in a little wooden boat, like a ten foot rowing boat, but it had a sort of fifteen horsepower engine, and we were uh, working on offshore islands that were quite far offshore, and um, we ran out of petrol halfway back to the mainland, and the waves were. It was a big sort of. This was in Madagascar, off the north tip of Madagascar, and there's big oceanic swell, and we sort of. And it was. Yeah, that was, we very nearly ended up in the drink then. Um, that was not exciting. Clinging on to our, our sort of canoe bags full of gear, trying not to lose all of our equipment over the side of the boat with the waves. Um, I don't, yeah. So what did you do? Did you did you have oars? Did you paddle if you we, ran out of petrol? We did, yeah. We had, but obviously with a big swell, that's not, that's not great. So we, no. there was a lot of water in, there was more water in the boat than there perhaps 
ought to have been. <laughs> and there was a bit of sort of hiding behind islands and waiting for, you know, the, the swell to drop and um, and the dark, you know, the night falling and stuff like this. So all um, high pressure, high pressure situations when you're really kind of powerless and it's up to nature whether it decides uh, in your favour or not that particular day. Um, all right hands up okay maybe not hands up but everybody comment who wants this action adventure series about the rain, <laughs> the rain in the wilderness yeah i mean that would be a netflix hit it would have to be yeah. <laughs> but as i long think as, as long as they're not making you relive it yeah <laughs> well, yeah. yeah there's a sort of inherent vulnerability when you're in a place like that you there's so you know you're you're so at the whim of of nature and there's so many times when things can almost go wrong. Like at this, that same trip, we, we had to take fresh water with us out to the islands. And then the boatman would leave and come and pick us up, sort of timed to when we would run out of fresh water. And one day his boat broke down and we didn't know and he didn't come. And we kind of ran out of water. Um, and when you're on a desert island with no fresh water, you you know, your your options are very, very limited. You don't sort of have an awful amount you can do other than sit and hope (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah but it's it that that sounds kind of I don't know dramatic um and I hope my mother doesn't listen to this podcast but but it's those things are just kind of they're just you know run-of-the-mill they just sort of happen and you weather them um the animals are the more exciting ones they're the ones that you really um they're the memories that you treasure, the near-death experiences that you treasure, either being stalked by wolves or bears or sharks or, you know, whatever. They're, they're kind of special. Yeah, that, treasure is not the word I'd use, but I, <laughs> you know, like, I appreciate where you're coming from. <laughs> Were the bears and sharks there just an example? Or... No, they, well, I wasn't really chased by a shark. It was just checking me out. And the bear, again, probably wasn't stalking us. It was just curious. Uh, that was in Russia, um, and the sharks were in Madagascar yeah. again. So it's kind so of, the... you know, you know they're there and you're there and they're curious about you and you you and are. They definitely... only really have big mouths to check <laughs> you out with. Yeah, <laughs> just just a little taste, a little nibble. <laughs> <laughs> Never did well, I mean, anyone any say... harm. <laughs> I I mean I think bears are amazing, but also I'm kind of. A lot more wary. I mean, I was pretty wary of bears before, but I'm even more wary now that I know that if they do want to eat you, they tend to like to eat you while you're still alive, so that you stay fresh. Yes. <laughs> oh, so they start no. from your feet. No, don't tell me that. I didn't know that. Oh no. <laughs> Share my existential angst on that oh, one. Oh no, I. We We had, uh, when I was in Russia, the Russian scientist I was working with gave us advice on what to do for various animals. And it was kind of like, wolves, you climb a tree and let them eat the dogs that you take with you into the forest. And um, uh, wild boar, you just kind of, you stay very, very quiet and very, very still and hope they go away. And moose, you back off very slowly and keep yourself visible at all times. And then it was... with bears he was like well <laughs> you just pray and he laughed and I was like no really what do you do and he was like no there's nothing you can do with bears they can run faster than you they can climb a tree faster than you if you try and look big or make a noise you'll just annoy them um if you lie down and play dead you might just make them curious so you just he just he said that's just when you find god <laughs> I was like okay <laughs> fair enough I don't want to meet a bear <laughs> <laughs> 
Right, well, thank you for that. I'm <laughs> did ask. Terrible panic now. Yeah, no, I did ask. This is entirely of my own doing, so I appreciate that. You're welcome. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're talking about sort of obviously the tip of Madagascar. I haven't been there, but I've been in um, South Africa a fair bit, and I was down at basically uh, the Cape of Good Hope. Yeah. And it was a beautiful, beautiful clear day. You could see for miles. And literally within less than five minutes, this wall of fog just blew up <sighs> almost from nowhere. Mm. And I, I mean, we, we didn't have video phones back then, but I did take pictures. Um, and you can see in these sequential snaps that are taken only a few seconds apart, this this, this wall of fog just advancing faster and faster. So, um, yeah, it's really strange going somewhere where the weather is so completely different to what you're used to yeah and how quickly it can just sort of turn on you and we were you know we were safe we were part of a big group we had a van to mm. drive back in etc it's not like we were out in a boat or anything but <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so, this does kind of link in with our discussion because of course we're talking about folklore today um, and folklore is so tied with the environment and the weather and that whim that frighteningly whimsical nature of of nature sorry nature of nature <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, of the environment and the creatures that inhabit it and you know, the fact that you can, as, Lor as Lorraine says, you can treasure these instances, but they're also terrifying. Um, and the beauty of something like a bear, which is also absolutely horrifying at the same time. Um, now, obviously, you were very um, inspired by folklore, um, in your recent book, which we will talk about in a little bit more detail in a minute. Um, but obviously, given also your background, Lorraine, um, and we've touched on this in previously, but for anyone who's only just joining us now, um, do you feel like your real life experiences have very much affected your interests in terms of folklore and in terms of fiction? Um, I think my experience as a biologist has definitely shaped how I write because it's shaped mm. how I approach building settings, just in a sort right. of practical writerly sense. Mm. Um, more kind of esoterically, I think, yeah, I think having spent a lot of time in the wilderness and um, very aware of my place or lack of place within that mm -hmm. makes you, I think, a much more conscious of the power that folklore has always played with us as a society and as individuals and how easy however sort of buffered we think we are and how civilized we think we are how close to the surface superstition still lies and how it mm. really doesn't take much to make that vulnerability and that sort of ingrained um, folkloric belief system and, and fear and ways of interpreting our fear they come to the surface really quickly when you are on your own in in a forest in the dark and there's something making noises or whatever yeah yeah <laughs> so i think definitely it's it 
really showed me um, how we are all very folkloric creatures still, however much we yeah. think we aren't. Yeah, and that, that is the thing, isn't it? We, <laughs> we Everyone thinks they're above it until they're alone in a house. <laughs> yeah, or I mean, it doesn't even need to be something obviously natural. I mean, just the whole sort of the lockdown scenario with COVID fairly recently, mm. um, when everybody was obviously having to stay indoors and things and you know you were allowed out for one walk a day or whatever and there was no traffic on the roads and suddenly it was again even though you know civilization was still there it was still a different world and you still you started to get i i I still think the sort of that that folkloric like bedrock was was rising then as well absolutely and of course you you know you do have to consider that superstition also has its part to play in that yeah. as well um you know that people are oh i don't believe in folklore but you'll get superstitious about the weirdest stuff <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah definitely okay um lorraine can you tell us a little bit about the way the light bends i'm sorry about the way i've just phrased that yeah. because that makes it sound like it's all on you and obviously <laughs> i read the book and i really love the book um to be honest it so... also just sounds like you've asked her a physics question so lorraine talk <laughs> about how God. light bends please <laughs> that's going back a long way and i'm not sure i'm capable of that anymore um so The Way the Light Bends is a dark folkloric mystery and it's kind of about um, what we, where we are willing to look when we are lost for in search of hope, I guess. Um, So it's full of, it follows um, two more or less estranged sisters who have lost their brother and a year after his death, his twin sister goes missing and this book follows her in the lead up to her disappearance and then her older sister after her disappearance trying to find her and find a way back to her at the same time Mm. and it's kind of uh it's full of scottish folklore as a mirror for grief and for the things that we will are willing to believe in when we are searching for hope um and lots of liminal spaces and and east coast scotland um yeah, it's kind of, it's sad and hopefully a little bit hopeful as well, perhaps. Yeah, uh, honestly, um, the only comparison, I, I think I made it in the, I left a review, but obviously as well. Um, but the comparison I made with um, This Is Our Undoing is the fact that after kind of putting us through hell, <laughs> you left us on a really uplifting note. <laughs> Which is something you you seem to do and do do very well, I might say. Um, but yeah, it's there's something very uh, almost wistful about the book as well, and a lot of the wistfulness kind of comes from the setting. And it's this idea that we've we've got the world as we see it, and if you're willing to accept it on face value, well, you can probably get through a fair bit of your life doing that. But underneath that is, as you say, this not really an other world exactly, but this 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 bedrock of, of the folkloric type belief mm. and you only need something to change slightly in your psyches for example a devastating personal loss um to start accessing that other level and that was very intricately woven in with the whole book as you and as you pointed out very scottish folklore i mean i even liked the fact that because freya isn't the freya is the older sister yeah. um, she's not necessarily 
immediately sympathetic in well certainly not to me the way that Tamsin was and yet as you go along you realize that actually Freya does have a lot of this as well it's just she's she's very much followed a path that she thought was expected of her as well yeah yeah and it's there's a lot about being trapped into certain roles I think within that and I was yeah. I was looking specifically at the roles that we are defined for us within our families and how they can sort of lead to a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of gaps in how we actually see our siblings and our family members and yeah Mm. I think Freya that was very much Freya she was she had a role that she played in that family just as Tamsin did and um, that's both good and bad I think it's it's quite interesting because um, and without wanting to give any spoilers there is this uh, you kind of lean into the ideas of changelings at one point again without wanting to give too many spoilers (laughs) Um, but what's interesting then is that by introducing that subject you also kind of bring in that sense of otherness of not belonging within a family because obviously you've got Freya and Tamsin um, and both of them feel like outsiders within their own family you know Uh, because you've got obviously the twins um, and then one twin goes and suddenly they're all divided none of them really belong they they're all um you know just feel like they're in a position where they shouldn't actually be and all they're trying to fit in a certain way or in some cases not trying to fit because obviously tamsin um doesn't try to back yeah yeah she pushes back um but Something that really, really interests me is, and it's not just with you, but obviously your book really, really brings it to the surface, um, is the relationship between folklore and old folklore, particularly Celtic folklore in this case, um, and death and grief. And how perhaps a lot of folklore is about dealing with grief of some kind or grievances. Um, and you know it, it again with the whole because obviously you have very strong sense of setting in the book as well um, in you know the, the rural Scotland I mean perfect setting really <laughs> um, for, for anything mystical this is the thing if you go to rural Scotland or rural Ireland you could be like it's fine during the day and then the night hits and you're standing alone and you're like yep there are definitely <laughs> things out here that want to kill me um, <laughs> there are things in these fields um, but yeah it, it's kind of going straight back to that old world this is not um, you know, this is not romanticised the rural rural fantasy or anything like that. This is the harsh, cruel, beautiful mm-hmm. nature of this rural world coming to life. And the way that you've tied grief with folklore just brings that all to the fore. And it, to me, that's something that makes some a story feel quite classic, but not classical, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's such a, um, it is such a common thread in folklore, isn't it? Like you were saying, mm. it's, and folklore, again, specifically Scottish folklore in this instance, is, it's not mm. light and fluffy, you know, it's, no. <laughs> <laughs> it can never be accused of being that, that's no. for sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's dealing with the darker side of humanity and the darker side of nature, and 
I, I don't think you can write Scottish folklore without tapping into the darker side of humanity because that's that's where the connection a lot of the connection lies um mm. you know even the kind of love story things and the, the the stories about children getting saved at the end it's not there's they're still not um light you know they they don't shy away from painting the world as a very dark and dangerous place to navigate yeah but still beautiful there's still the sense of wonder and what's interesting again is is also the sense of peace which is that instead of it being a and everything is resolved kind of story, it's and everything is in its place kind of story. Uh-huh. Um, I'm glad you... I, I love peop- hearing people say that because I made a decision with this ending and it's not, like you say, it's not fully resolved. And that was a definite decision and it kind of goes against a lot of sort of creative writing, teaching. Mm. Um, but it's a decision and that I made for... Well, for two reasons. One, to do with folklore, which we'll probably get onto, and sort of narrative devices in folklore. Um, but also because grief isn't something that you get closure from. No. Um, you know, you don't get to say those things you wish you'd said or, or change the decision you wish you could change. And you, it's, it's not about getting closure and getting resolution. It's about finding a way to carry on without that grief drowning you. And so that's, yeah. yeah, so that was kind of, and I think a lot of folklore is about that. People aren't healed and happy at the end of a lot of folklore stories. They are just, you know, they're safe for another day sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. they're usually fundamentally changed, exactly. aren't they? I mean, um, the Scottish folklore angle was something that I kind of encountered really properly, I think, when I was nine and we did a trip up to Scotland. And... Um, <laughs> My mum and my no, it was my mum. I'd run out of things to read. This was not an unusual face of speaking for me <laughs> as a child. I'd run out of things to read. So my mum bought me a book of Scottish fairy tales. And of course, I'd encountered the very, very sanitised versions of the already sanitised Andrew Lang Victorian type of fairy tales. Yeah. So getting a book, a book of Scottish fairy tales was something of a culture shock. <laughs> I bet, yeah. But the one that struck me, and I can't remember the name of the main character, um, he was... Oh, he was a, a brilliant piper, and by piper, obviously, they mean someone playing the bagpipes, I think. Yeah. Um, and he played for this strange... I mean, he was travelling from one... Travelling late from a wedding one evening, um, and he stopped to rest by a hill, which is already a big mistake. <laughs> Don't do it! <laughs> Don't do it. And he found himself in this strange and brilliant company, and they said, oh, if you if you will pay for us, we will we'll gladly pay you. So he played and he played and he played and he played and eventually they, he said, I really must be carrying on with my journey. And they laughed and they tossed him a bag of coins and he found himself in broad daylight outside this hill. Um, but something didn't feel right about the world around him. So he carried on walking and he finally reached the next village and didn't know anybody there. Um, the village was much bigger than it should be everything was a bit different and when he finally managed to get answers a hundred years had passed (laughs) and everyone he knew was dead (laughs) so he was alive, he'd survived the experience but he didn't fit in anywhere anymore yeah yeah. I think that's the thing, like dipping into the shadows changes you and I think that doesn't necessarily mean you get the ending the happy ending that you foresaw at the start no, you don't um, the other point I would like to make, I think, is something that it's always sort of stayed with stayed with me, is the fact that mythologies spring up within families about specific family members. So, 
for example, um, one of three sisters, and we had basically the clever one, the kind one, and the, the beautiful one. Guess which one I was? <laughs> All three. And those... <laughs> no, oh, <laughs> flattery will get you everywhere. Um, no, basically, it's one of those things where it was said tongue-in-cheek. It was a joke. And yet, at the same time, it was an incredibly limiting thing to put on a child. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you start to believe these these internal mythologies in a family to the point where eventually you get to be an adult and you don't know where certain beliefs and things have come from until you really challenge yourself on what you actually remember. Yeah. And I felt that was something you also tapped into with your, your sibling dynamic. Yeah, I, well, I tried to, hopefully. <laughs> um, and I think, again, that's something that you don't necessarily always get closure with because it's really hard to go back and unpick family relationships like that and when family relationships have broken down there's often not resolution there's often there isn't often a happy ending for that um but you need to find a way to be yourself and be true to yourself sort of from that point on from the way that it's changed you living accepting the way that it's changed you and moving on from that and what's quite interesting as well is that there is underlining also a sense of the seasons and of, and of time passing again without wanting to give any spoilers at the end um freya has got something to look to for the future yeah um and it is a catalyst for change yeah definitely you know um so it, it and that is something again that we see a lot in folklore this idea of actually perhaps you are the one who suffers but your suffering your story will in some way help others in future either as a warning either you know as a tale to be told as knowledge which can be passed on etc yeah I and mean, i think that's a really common thing in folklore isn't it is that mm-hmm. um no story stands on its own you know no. they're, all, they're all part of a, a cycle or a web um they're kind of like interlocking spider webs in what looks like the sort of outer rings of one story becomes part of another story and you know they're all you pull on one thread and actually it's connected to sort of seven different webs and stories um which again is one of the reasons why a lot of my books don't end sort of completely neatly tied up because I've read too much folklore and I don't I don't kind of naturally air towards tying everything up at the end of a story it feels odd to me given that folklore never does do that no, not entirely. It's just the end of that chapter. Yeah, if, and as then it were. sort of ten, 10 years later, everything will destabilise again, or those figures will will crop up in another story, causing mischief again, or causing yeah. wars or heartbreak or whatever again. And it, it's everything's so interwoven and so cyclical. Um, it feels it feels very natural to write that way myself, even though they're standalone books, which makes no sense, but still. No, no, I, I get exactly what you mean. <laughs> there's a, no, there's a sense of, like... yeah, something else there. You feel like you've dipped into something rather than picked something up, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's part of it's part of its own world, and you've just told a little bit of the story of that world rather than you've created yeah. a kind of an island that is that yeah. is the story on its own. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's... For the moment, I'm sure we're going to come back to the way the light bends. Um, let's get on to our main subject for the moment. But um, as we will, we will touch on um, the way the light bends is kind of a perfect example of how you can use folklore <laughs> by storytelling. If you guys haven't got that already, 
So, um, right, well, this is, I'm going to do something that's kind of a bit, it's, it's, it's going to be limiting, but um, try and define the difference between folktales, fairy tales, etc. Obviously, there's loads and loads of crossover, but if we use these as very broad definitions and then completely ignore them, <laughs> I think that might be, the, yeah. might be the easiest thing to do. So, yeah. Um, broadly speaking, folklore and folk tales are a body of stories passed down through a culture orally, mm -hmm. generally. Um, they are somewhat distinct from fairy tales, which tend to be more, you know, tend to use fantasy elements more liberally um, as actual fantasy rather than we would consider this fantasy, but we really believe it happened kind of thing. This is possible. So um, in, in a folklore where you, in a folktale rather, where you have somebody... Um, perhaps changing from a seal into a person and back again. Told in the folkloric type tradition, it's basically something that could happen. Whereas if you take that and um, make it something like the Little Mermaid or the Little Selkie or whatever, it's fantasy. So there's definitely a kind of, yeah, there's an element of truth here, but really this is kind of a fantasy version of that. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um, and then you have myths, which actually their origins tend to start in a spiritual or even religious human need to explain the world yeah. and human origins. So, for example, the Garden of Eden or Pandora's box or, you know, the, the gods and the titans, etc. Um, and legends which often contain historical figures, places and events, but writ much larger than life. So, for example, Dick Whittington, who, until I started researching 14th century history, I didn't realise was actually a real person. Yep. <laughs> Um, and Robin Hood, who most likely was based on a historical character, but we're not sure that a lot of the events around Robin Hood actually really took place. Yeah. It's the ideas. <laughs> it's the ideas. He might have been based on about six historical people. Yeah. <laughs> now, every culture does have its own body of folklore, and while there may be commonalities and crossover points, each body of law is uniquely representative of the mindset and place which spawned it. Because, as we've said, folklore is incredibly tied with the environment. So the environment which spawned it is going to, you know, shape it very, very much. <laughs> Among other things, of course. Yeah, um, as an example, the uh, not all folk tales I found are necessarily warning you of something. Sometimes they're, they're or rather, they're not warning you with the with the intent of you escaping a similar fate. It's just kind of if you find yourself in this situation, this will probably happen to you. Yeah, it's the bear um, situation again. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it is the bear. It is the bear. You're quite right. And some of them have a certain amount of glee to it. So. Um, I don't know, there's various different African traditions um, of folk tales, but there's there's one in particular about the talking skull. I'm pretty sure it's originally a Swahili tale, but I could be wrong. And it's it, it, oh, just a potted version of it. One day a hunter goes out by himself hunting. And he finds a human skull on the ground. And he says to himself, how did you get to be here? And the skull says to him, I got here through talking, my friend. And the hunter thinks this is a marvellous thing, so he runs back and he tells the village elders, he tells the chief, he tells the other hunters, and everyone thinks they must see this marvellous thing, the talking skull. So they all trek out to where he left the skull lying, and the hunter says to the skull, now speak, and the skull sits on the ground, silent. 
and the chief is so angry with the hunter for lying to him that he cuts his head off. A short while later, the skull that was originally sat on the ground says, how did you come to be here? And the hunter's head says, I came here through talking, my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is obviously a, you don't need to tell everything you know to everyone, you know, kind of scenario. Yeah. But there's very definitely a macabre glee to that story. <laughs> yeah. There is. <laughs> it's a little bit That's boy right. who cries wolf, but but yeah. slightly more <laughs> yeah. enjoying the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, if you regularly listen to dissecting dragons, you'll have heard Madeline and me talk about these things regularly, especially fairy tales, myths, and legends, because that's totally our bag. Yeah. Um, but today, obviously, we're looking at the more nebulous category of folk tales and folklore, and obviously how exactly they can inform storytelling. Yeah. Uh, a final point before we get cracking. Folk tales are not attribut- attributable to a single author. And as such, they do belong to everyone. Although, obviously, you should always be respectful of any culture you borrow folklore from, whether it's your own or not. Um, Because folklore is incredibly tied, again, with the environment, but also with the people. So being conscientious is important. Now, with that in mind, let's get into why folktales are still so effective in storytelling terms. Yeah, I mean, a big one is the commonality of experience. So, you know, we're, we're, we're edging slightly into fairy tales here, but we've all been, you know, metaphorically lost in the woods. Or we've all met wicked wolves, people who tell us one thing and actually what they're saying does not represent what's really going on in a situation. Um, or, you know, hopefully we've all learned to be kind to those in need. It would be nice to think that was the case. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that some people in this conversation have... I've literally met wolves. wolves. (laughs) (laughs) The wolves in reality are a bit more honest than the wolves in fiction. Uh, They are misportrayed in folklore, bless them. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now, while other storytelling modes are more sophisticated in a lot of ways, folktales speak to our DNA. Or at least to our leaning towards cooperative intelligence, friendliness, and behaviour which promotes the need of the species. So um, these are ideas uh, put forward by Bregman, isn't it? Yeah, I'm trying to remember his first name now, but it's completely gone out of my head. (laughs) But um, yeah, there is a body of evidence that generally speaking... um, while that i mean that there's various schools of thought there is the school of thought where humans survived by being nastier than everything else but there's also the school of thought that actually we survived because we learned to work together and we're more intelligent in a group than we are by ourselves and there's quite a bit of there's been quite a few studies to back that up though what i'd Um, like to know is at what point when you start getting people together do they become less intelligent because uh, i think there's when you put lots of people together they get they get yes the the, the crowd is quite stupid yes. I understand. <laughs> yes. um but yeah and and you know we again not to invoke them but carl young joseph campbell um you know this idea of these archetypes and things like that which are ingrained in humanity itself so regardless of your 
cultural upbringing or status or things like that there are certain ideas which are just infused in the human mind from in some form or another um one could argue that again yes this is biology or this is just comes from the fact that most people will have had similar experiences um of some kind who knows but we do have to say yes there is there are certain things within folklore which are incredibly universal um yeah this ultimately means that everyone can get something from a folk tale um and because they are so simple it's just very easy you know often without you know, often the characters don't have names they tend to linger in the mind so that even if you don't get sorry even if you didn't get the kernel of truth when you heard the story it comes to you later um certainly i know that folk tales i heard when i was a kid i was like okay and then <laughs> i relook at them as an adult and i'm like oh, <laughs> oh i get it now <laughs> yeah it's one of my one of my german friends was sort of telling me some of the stories that he got told by I mean not even you know the original Brothers Grimm type stuff but this is the sort of pre-Brothers Grimm stuff yeah and it's like one of them was kind of like there was a child who would not stop sucking his thumbs so his mother chopped his thumbs off and I'm like is that even a story (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I saw one of those Victorian books which was yeah that the the child is warned that if they don't stop sucking their thumb uh, the guy with the big scissors will come and cut them off, and it's all—it was all illustrated graphically, of the mother turning away, the thumb goes back in the mouth, and then this this sort of spring-heeled Jack kind of figure comes leaping through the window with these massive scissors and just chases this poor child around the room, and then cuts off his thumbs and leaves, and the mother comes back and is like, "Told you." <laughs> It's like I've done quite a lot of research recently on the bogeyman mm. who turns up in various guises in various different cultures just because it's it's relevant to what I'm currently writing. And I mean, even as a child, I think when someone said the bogeyman, I kind of just laughed. The more I delve into it in various different cultures, I'm like, this is actually horrifying. You seriously you, you expect your children to go to sleep by telling them this stuff. Yeah. And while I completely understand, I mean, not having children of my own, but seeing my sisters with their kids, I completely understand the the inclination to go, just go to sleep. Go to sleep. <laughs> or the bogeyman. Okay, I understand. Okay, I get it. But I'm still, like, low-key quite horrified by a lot of this stuff. I love it. I was, um, I've just written a novella based in Iceland, actually. And so part of my research was looking up Icelandic lullabies and the kind of... Mm. Um, there's a, a fake one that has done the rounds on the internet quite a lot, but the real ones are just as bad, and they're all based on terrifying your child to be quiet, even if they won't go to sleep. So it's all kind of like, hush, there's a face at the window, and you must be quiet, yeah. they are creeping around the house now. And that's the, that's the lullabies that they sang to their children. And it's, it's you know, <laughs> we're, we're not going to soothe you, we're going to terrify the living daylights out of you so that you don't squeak and we get to sleep. It's just such a... It's, a, it's an interesting approach to parenthood. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. It, it's it's like Rockabye Baby. What is that? What, <laughs> well, how is that comforting in the least? You're on the top of a tree and at some point you're just going to fall down. Why would you say that to a child? 
<laughs> yes, there's some some interesting ones behind that. Uh, some interesting theories as to where that came from. It's, I mean, that one is so old; it might actually pre the whole concept and the basic framework of the tune might actually predate written history. Mm. It's that old. Gosh. Um, but yeah, the the whole when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall was kind of a death wish for James the second son. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, there are other theories as well. Nobody knows for sure, but yeah. <laughs> but we've still been singing it for centuries to our children. So basically, we've been singing this death wish to our children for centuries. Gosh. But the one that always struck me was Baba Mulaniv, which is the um, the Scottish lullaby, um, which was, I believe, written in sort of 1584 or slightly after, um, and it was a, a clan chief was was executed, and it's the, his lady singing the baby to sleep, and she's. it starts off quite innocuous, as in, I don't have any sheep, the others have all the sheep. Obviously, it sounds much better in Gaelic, um, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get to the second verse, and it's like, so you must hush, my child. I'm not sure you'll live to be grown. Um, there sits your father's head where they took it from his body set upon a wooden post <laughs> and it just gets bloodier and bloodier the further <laughs> down you go that's metal <laughs> it's got a beautiful tune it really is lovely it always does with the Scottish one <laughs> they always do it's a lovely lovely sort of soothing music and then you listen to the lyrics and you just think yeah you guys were messed up <laughs> you guys were going through something huh yeah. <laughs> having some feelings <laughs> okay um so basically when when we're looking at folk tale storytelling there are four main points you can draw out of most folk tales and i think people sort of take these and apply them to you know, general storytelling, even if you're writing something like contemporary romance, I think people accidentally take these because they are so universal. But um, see what you guys think as we go through. Mm. So you're, you're starting with the first point, which is quite an obvious one, and that is character. And this character quite often embodies a virtue. Yeah. Um, that's not the entirety of their character, but this is their, their great strength. Obviously, their great strength can also be their greatest weakness, etc., etc., but certainly in folktale terms where the character may not even have a name, it may just be a case of the youngest son of the farmer or the, the princess with the golden hair or whatever, they have this this singular single virtue. And this is the virtue that will be tested through the tale. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um so I don't know, let's I don't know, let let's do this as kind of like an off the cuff exercise. So let's have a character, um, Madeline, pick us a character. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> like anything you like from folklore, or should we just? Can no, we... just make one up. Make one up. Yeah, make one up. Okay, we're going something to sounds have. Plausible. All right, something that sounds plausible. Uh, we're going to have the miller's son. Okay, the miller's son. What's the miller's son's greatest virtue, Lorraine? His strength. Strength. Okay, that's an interesting one. I like that. Okay, so we've got the miller's son and strength. And then our second point is the main floor. Okay, obviously, as we've said, the, the main floor, the thing that might get in the way of the, the his strength being tested is is this this issue. And it you know, maybe he his maybe his strength is its own 
encumbrance, if you like. Maybe there are times when he doesn't know how to moderate the st his strength. So he starts off the story. He's very strong. He's got a promising career as a miller <laughs> ahead of him. And um, he gets into a wrestling match or a fight with one of the other lads in the village um, and accidentally really injures him. And this sets him on the path to adventure. So there you go. First bit of the folk tale. <laughs> So we've got the, the character, which is the miller's son. We've got the virtue, which is his strength. The main flaw, which is the fact that he doesn't have an awful lot of control over it yet. Yeah. At this point, you get point number three. Point number three is the host of the challenge. Now, the host of the challenge is a weird one, but it's the one I really like because quite often it's an anthropomorphic animal. So, yeah. And more often than not, it's a fox. So I'm totally on board. <laughs> um, this is someone who sets them sets the main character on their path through this this particular part of the story so the miller's son has to leave the village he ends up walking off through the wood can it be a bear can it be a bear well, is the bear likely to stop and talk to him well, it's, a, it's, it's a fox mythology, isn't it well i was going to say a bear yeah, though true. because bears are also strong yes um anyway the host, <laughs> of, the challenge, the host of the challenge isn't the antagonist it just he literally just acts like a way station. So it can be like, like in some stories, it's the, the old woman who needs help with or that, that tests your kindness or whatever. It, it literally just sets off like that. So let's have our miller son walking through the wood and he meets the host of the challenge who is going to be a bear, Madeline, or something else. A bear. <laughs> a bear, okay. He meets a bear. The bear has its foot caught in a trap. Um... Now, he could have just run away, but he feels a bit sorry for this bear. And because he's quite strong, he manages to pry the jaws of the, the trap apart and the bear retracts its foot. At this point, obviously, we're not looking for absolute realism. Yeah. The bear is, is feeling quite grateful, so decides not to eat him and says, if you're looking to make your fortune, you need to head off in, in this direction. And it sort of sets the miller's son off in the direction he needs to go in to trust to test his this virtue which is strength and to hopefully defeat the flaw which is his lack of control so that would be the main challenge which can be i don't know any suggestions i don't know i'm still stuck on on the bear <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say the folktale could just end with he frees the bear the bear mauls him the end. <laughs> yeah i mean well, actually, yes, he, he chose to use his strength. The bear got out of the trap and then the bear mauls him. Um, fine, then that was an occasion when he should have moderated his strength and not used it, in yeah. which case he didn't win the challenge. Yeah. So theoretically, yes, you can end the story like that if you want to. <laughs> but anyway, that's just to illustrate the four sort of main points. There are obviously loads of other things that come into a folk tale. Yeah. Um, and they can be quite long if they want to. It's just, it's quite noticeable that folk tales tend to be quite short. And as Lorraine has pointed out, they obviously don't always end happily with everything neatly tied up. Yeah. Um, whereas fairy tales, I won't say they always end with, and then they lived happily ever after, um, but they tend to have more moving parts. So certainly by the time you get to things like Charles Perrault and the Brothers Grimm, um, there tends to be a lot more steps and stages in the story. You might have more hosts of the challenge, etc. Yeah, there's um, also... So... Sorry. No, it's all right, Karen. I was going to say predominantly something which you do get in folk 
uh, folk tales, but you find very much in folklore is in folk tales you do have the, the, the challenge of some kind. And in fairy tales, it's often about a choice. A choice is made. And the the conclusion is the uh, the results of that choice. So someone makes a choice based on the flaws or, um, or, or the strengths that they have. And that choice is therefore rewarded um, or punished. But there is at the central point a choice which has to be made. It's the pivot point in the story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've heard somebody else sort of do a bit of a breakdown on the Green Knight. Um, obviously, the I want to say the Mallory. It's not Mallory. Do I? Who wrote the poem The Green Knight? It's gone. It's completely gone out of my head. I cannot remember. <laughs> cannot remember. Okay, I will find that out. But um, it's been translated by various various different people, including Tolkien. Yeah. Um, and the whole premise of it is that Gawain is not really ready to be a knight, and when the the Green Knight, the, the titular character, comes in and says to Arthur, Are "Any of your any of your men at arms willing to strike a blow against me?" Um, Gawain overstrikes and cuts the, the Green Knight's head off, which unfortunately doesn't aim him, um, so end him, which um, is unfortunate for Sir Gawain because the Knight then says, "Okay, you've struck once against me. In one year's time, on the winter solstice, I will strike the same blow against you." So um, at that point, uh, Gawain kind of has a bit of a shit year, shall we say. <laughs> and as it heads towards the winter solstice, he sets off to find the Green Knight, um, knowing that he's basically going to get his head cut off. Which is very awkward. <laughs> Which is very awkward in this poem. And he has he is tested along the way by various different things. The knightly virtues of generosity, chastity, um, courage... Um, and honour are tested along the way. And he kind of fails at all of them. He fails at generosity by only giving one coin when he could have given more, and therefore he's robbed in the forest. He uh, fails at... Um, the, the, I can't remember exactly which virtue it is. I think it, it might actually be honour when he's asked by a ghost to retrieve her head from the bottom of a lake. Um, she was She was killed by her husband and he threw her head into a lake. And he kind of fails at that one too. And then he absolutely spectacularly fails at the virtue of chastity. (laughs) Because he spends the night at the house and the lady of the house comes on to him and Gawain does not resist. No. Um, Runs away in shame and encounters the lord of the castle and has to cover up his own misdeed. And it sort of follows on from there. And it very much is folktale rather I think more I mean I know it's got more steps but Mm. it feels more folktale to me than fairy tale yeah 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 I would say so I love the the um sort of predestiny kind of element to that as well like he had a choice he could have fled but he trundles off and it ineptly accepts his fate that he's going to go and meet this the green knight and fight him yes and it's right at the start when the green knight said I'll meet you in a year's time why didn't he say well I'll no (laughs) i'm not coming (laughs) they should have they should have had a little bit more dialogue like okay where do you want to meet rather than just i guess i should wander into the forest and die (laughs) well even before that instead of cutting his head off which is like major overkill he could have just wounded the knight against the back of his hand or something yeah a bit like our miller's son he didn't know his own strength 
Yep. Can yeah, control exactly. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, you a lot of people could argue that the basis for a folk tale is isn't that just the monomyth? And without going into a subject that would be its own episode or perhaps even a series of episodes because it's that huge. Mm. Um, yes and no, because yes, the, you know, the hero's journey and the heroine's journey borrows a lot from the basic structure of a folktale. Yeah. Um, but is generally like a fairy tale concerned with far more bells and whistles in storytelling terms. Um, it's also worth noting that monomyth is a bit of a misnomer anyway, both in the Western tradition, because they've they say monomyth as in as if it's literally the only thing and then they've squeezed lots of other things into it that don't technically fit the original definition. Yeah. And then on top of that, there are at least three other well-established storytelling modes from other cultures that it obviously that don't fit at all, that you cannot get in there. But um, as we said, that's another episode and we won't go into that now because we'll go off on a serious tangent if yeah. we do. So how then do you blend folklore with modern writing? Um, so I think, first of all, you can just write in the folktale mould. So it can be outwardly simple... Uh, distinguishing characters by their virtue and flaws rather than by names and backstories, keeping the story relatively short and ending with the success or failure of the virtue instead of the challenge. You can do that. Um, you can also weave threads from folklore into a modern narrative instead. <laughs> yeah, which is um, obviously what Lorraine has done Yeah, as well. I mean, do you want to talk about some of the specific folklore threads that you chose for The Way the Light Bends? Obviously, I don't want to get into spoiler territory, but it was very interesting the, the direction you went. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I just... I looked at a lot of symbolism, and there's a lot of symbolism in, in the book, rather than having the kind of um, stereotyped characters um, and the, you know, the kind of hero's arc thing that we're talking about. I was just looking at at symbols and how powerful they still are and how uh, we tie ourselves in knots um, around the power of of certain emblems and actions. Um, and that's that's something separate from folkloric narrative um, arcs. It's more just about, again, the kind of universally recognised thing like the power of blood to bind and you know, silver has become such a commonly recognised thing, and liminal spaces is again absolutely mm. universal through a lot of folklore um, as a really powerful uh, territory to venture into. Um, and that again goes back to that question of characters being faced with choices. And I think a lot of the power of liminal spaces is that it represents a moment of choice, doesn't it? Like, do you mm. do you pass beyond? that thing do you go through the gateway and if you go through the gateway are you you know the kind of schrodinger's cat what will you be when you come out the other end um yeah and so i think i was playing rather than i mean there is a particular mythological character in my fiction which we've already touched on in that book um i mean it's kind of left a little bit open but he is a he is a figure from mythology but um but most of it was more about the symbols and the power that they can play and weaving them into a modern narrative. So rather than take a, a folkloric story, I've taken a character and an idea from folklore, which is the, mm. the, the changelings that we talked about, and then a lot of the symbols and the things that people 
looked to as sources of power or sources of um, protection or hope and interwoven them into a modern story which is not the same as retelling a folk tale I wouldn't have said no, it, no it's interesting that you say that particularly with the use of symbols because um we talked about how folk tales have such a place and that you know that they're universal that we kind of we all know them that um it's quite interesting when with regards to symbols because symbols can be so representative of folk tales now i'm going to dip a little bit into fairy tales here just just to give you sort of an example but if i say a red cloak red hood <laughs> yeah people immediately go right well little red riding hood or they go batman but we're not going to talk about that um <laughs> you know if i say glass slipper um or if i say uh poison apple or things like that these are all tiny Even if you things. say something like third child yeah, yeah third child yeah, yeah. It, it, something comes to mind and i think with folklore as well um they can be sort of summarized in symbols in a lot of ways and so by inv invoking those symbols even if we're not necessarily familiar with the story um it's kind of like a micro story within the symbol itself so it evokes a lot of ideas and themes um and that it's very subtle it's like having a hint of a flavor but all of that together amounts to something which possesses a great deal of depth yeah yeah and you're sort of playing on things as you say that people already know deep down in their psyche exactly kind of and so, i think that's it, as a writer that's really fun because you can play with it very openly and you can use it very openly like i use the you know the power of blood and the, the spring pool and sort of liminal things quite obviously but you can also refer to things like that without really developing that as a plot point but be playing with your reader's subconscious so mm. by mentioning you know an apple or a mirror or um i don't know three drops of blood or whatever you can it it can't it isn't necessarily that you're bringing folklore into your story but you're bringing folklore into your reader's subconscious and absolutely you're, you're yeah. kind of tricking them into making certain associations that they might not even realize consciously that they're making um which is an incredibly powerful um tool as a writer i think quite fun i agree yeah, yeah. and i think it also it it it's that thing that causes the echo within us when we're sort of reading if that makes sense yeah that sense of oh i feel touched by this and that's a little bit eerie as well which is definitely what you want in in sort of you know a folk mystery <laughs> yeah i think it's those yeah. just little things that will unsettle people because their unconscious yeah. tells them that they need to be unsettled at that and they might not yeah they might not remember the story that tells them why they should be unsettled but they know that that image is a is a little red flag kind of thing yeah absolutely so you know as Lorraine has just perfectly demonstrated you can take inspiration from folklore so you don't actually have to even be using folklore um this works particularly well if you're exploring a specific universal theme like love and jealousy and grief which do tend to be the big main three but are not exclusive you know uh, grief death death is a big one as well growing up change etc um I think identity is actually a really big one in a lot of fairy tales and folk tales. It is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, yeah. And then you can literally write a folk tale in a contemporary setting, or you can half folklore, half contemporize the story. So, um, example, uh, Grey Angels. Uh, yeah, that's one I had an advanced review copy of, and I recommended it on, I think, an early episode. Yeah. And it doesn't, it's not an actual folk tale as we know it, mm. in the sense of it's not one that already exists. But the whole thing kind of reads like a folk tale, even though it's happening now. But it's happening in in um, in this place where the the church is called Grey Angels, mm. and you don't go into Mock Beggar Woods. Yeah. Everybody local knows you don't go into Mock Beggar Woods, and it's a really interesting story about how this family has passed on this tendency to have great success and great wealth. And yet at the same time, this, this awful curse and this awful loss at the same time. They don't really use words like curse and loss. It's kind of like, no, this was the deal that was made. This was the bargain that was fashioned kind of thing. Yeah. So instead of feeling like um, a retelling of a ghost story, um, which obviously don't have to have ghosts in, um, or even like a fairy tale, it really does feel like folklore, like something's being passed on to you. Yeah. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, I love folklore so much, um, which I guess sort of brings us on to our kind of our last question, which is how have we used folklore in our writing? Now, obviously, uh, Lorraine, you've you've used it for this most recent book, um, but is it only this most recent book? Have you drawn from folklore for other pieces of writing? Um, or will you in future, do you think? I think, personally speaking, I would find it really hard to write and not draw from folklore because, mm. well, for two one, like I said at the start, because we carry so much folklore within ourselves and we are all, at heart, extremely superstitious. So to write a character that doesn't have that would be, mm. to me, quite false. But also, because I always write in fairly wilderness-heavy settings, you can't, again, you can't have characters navigating a wilderness without them and their behaviour being shaped by the folklores that they carry within themselves. So, mm. um, so yeah, like my first book isn't folkloric in the sense that this book is, um, mm. but it has, it has the fox in as a very powerful symbol. And again, that's because of the folklore around foxes and the fact that they are emblematic in so many world folklores of various different things and it felt like a very powerful symbol for me to play with and yeah. I have various Slavic folkloric elements in there as well um, and my third book I've invented a whole fan, um, new folklore sort of for my my fictional society um, which was really interesting to do and again built up around the setting and the the evolution of that society and how that shapes their folklore and their um relationship with their environment so yes so i think whether it's in the foreground or the background um will vary depending on what fits the story but um mm. it's always going to be there i don't think i could write without it okay yeah i think you're right <laughs> Yeah, um, is that the book I've read? As if we're talking, it's quite quite strongly in the in herb lore and plant lore, isn't it? Um, oh, that's that's my fourth book. That, yeah, that's your fourth that's book. The, okay. Yes. Yeah. So the third. There's another one out there. I haven't got There's my a... notes on. <laughs> I think you might have read it. It's the one set on an island. 
I can't say any more than that. <gasps> oh, yes, I have. Yes. Sorry, I have read that's, it. Yeah, and yeah, it absolutely does. So that's coming out next year, and that's got its own fictional mythology around it. <laughs> so. Something's been hinted at there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it does. <laughs> Jules has these, like, she gets advanced sight of all my books. She has sneaky insights. <laughs> in, in fairness, if I want to read it, I'm quite good at getting an advanced review copy. Not because I won't buy the book, because I will. <laughs> it's just because I don't want to wait. Yeah. <laughs> I have no patience and zero chill if it's a book I want to read. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> As Madeline knows, she's had messages from me past midnight, literally just asking for you know, has she finished something yet? Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't even say how are you. She just she just puts the book title in and with a question mark. Uh, <laughs> Straight to the point. Yeah. Yeah, and I appreciate person. that. <laughs> Obviously, Jules, yeah. you've drawn a lot from folklore in your in your own writing. Yeah, I'm not sure that was a conscious decision to start with. Um and then I noticed I was doing it, so I just sort of started doing it more because I really enjoyed um, the sort of research involved but I also really enjoyed weaving those things together and seeing who would pick up what mm. um, it's very much been a conscious thing um, with this you know completely different vein of writing to Lorraine's I'd like to point out mine is urban fantasy it's obviously genre fiction it's very it's easy okay it's, it's, it's not as accomplished it's still beautiful um, that's very kind but <laughs> But yeah, once again, it's got a very strong folkloric element because I'm writing about cryptids. Mm. So I'm bending, I'm bending, I'm blending folklore with science and at some points fringe science as well, where I've kind of needed things to happen. So I've, I've made things up a bit. <laughs> um, I've used theories that I know are not sound. Um, I think every book in that series actually has a little apology at the back to whichever science scientist <laughs> I've offended in that book. So, you know, physicists, geneticists, etc., it's, I mean, um, you have also <laughs> drawn on it for your history books as well. Yes. I I find it weird when, I mean, this not that anyone's doing it wrong, but when people write historical fiction, they kind of don't draw on the belief system of the time. Because, yes, if we're talking um, Britain in the sort of medieval era, yes, a lot of people believed in God, but an awful lot of people didn't believe in God and didn't go to church all the time, or they believed in an older church, the Church of the Celtic Rite. And it was actually quite common for them to be doing things which we would consider pagan practices. Mm. Um, the whole sort of thing with the witchcraft persecution and people were burned at the stake. Well, actually, they didn't really do that until later on. Yeah, That was when Christianity got more of a toehold on lots of different things, like... Um, during medieval era uh, the church had nothing to do with weddings it, it, it kills me every time I see a film where you've got some lord and some lady getting married and it's been, it's happening in a church it's like no it would have happened in the gatehouse with all the serfs and everything standing nearby so they could see so they'd witness it and then there'd be a big feast for everyone it had nothing to do with the church the church just came in and used it to make money a bit later on yeah so it's even even stuff like that and I suppose I get a bit anally retentive about those sort of details which is why I end up putting a lot of this stuff in there <laughs> yeah absolutely. yeah well it's I mean you know we're still we've still got pagan practices indelibly linked yeah. with our society now you know putting holly up at Christmas and tossing coins in wishing yeah. wells and stuff so the idea that they wouldn't be present even in a nominally Christian society back then is just bonkers you yeah know, they, absolutely 
definitely. Um, and Madeline also is a big fan of folklore, in case anybody didn't get that yeah. so far. <laughs> Just in case anyone missed that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've obviously used it a lot, and I will continue to use it. And you can pry it out of my cold, dead, grabby raccoon hands. <laughs> Now <laughs> we, we especially like the Corrigans for yes. like read a mildly terrified by. <laughs> well, we've come to the end of our episode. Uh, before we go, however, um, Rain, uh, can you just tell us a little bit more about where your book is available and where you can be found online, etc., and and anything else you'd like to tell us? Oh gosh. Um, okay, it is available. It's out with Luna Press, so it's either available from their website or all major online retailers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm usually on Twitter at rain with an e underscore clouds. That's my sort of my most common lurking place. But um, I have a website which is um, shadowsonwater.wordpress.com, where you will find links to my books and interviews and my mentoring program and all that kind of nonsense. Perfect. <laughs> well, it's been fantastic having you with us again. Thank you. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. I have. It's good. Any excuse to talk about folklore is always good. <laughs> yeah, same with us, to be honest. <laughs> we just needed a reason. Um, and obviously this week, our Dissecting Dragons recommendation is The Way the Light Bends by Lorraine Wilson. Um, guys, go and check it out. If we haven't convinced you by now, then you need to go back to the start of the episode and listen again because you've obviously missed something really important. Um, yeah, it's it's an amazing book. It's really, really, it, it's just sort of blew me away I mean, to to the point where I was reading it in small sections because I just had to really take it in as I was going. So um, yeah, yeah. I was, anything I that makes me slow down reading wise. A lot of commentary from Jules as she was reading it, like I'm being eviscerated. <laughs> It is. I am experiencing that classic thing where a lot of people are saying I've made them cry, and you, you know, you kind of, you're like, oh gosh, I'm really sorry, but also, yay! yay. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> so, yes, it's an absolutely great book, and everybody should read it. Really. So there, yeah. there you go. That's my recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I normally talk longer, but I'm not going to. <laughs> and on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.